0: Warning. Children do not constitute anyone's property. They are neither the property of their parents, nor even of society. They belong only to their own future freedom. Mikhail Bakunin.
1: Should we think of it as belonging to their own future freedom, or should we think of it just as belonging to their own freedom? I mean, I get what Bakunin's saying, and I'm totally down with it, but do you know what I mean? I totally
0: know what you mean. I think that the idea of future freedom kind of suggests... We're not totally going to give them freedom. Maybe freedom once they're a little bit older. Once they can handle the freedom, we'll give them a little bit of it. Just a, just a little taste to whet their appetite.
1: Yeah, I guess, I think he's probably trying to make reference to the growing developmental capacity of children. He's trying to reflect and respect the need children have to be nourished and protected for some early period of time in the balance of his wording there. Bakunin leaves
0: a lot to be desired <laughs> there's great stuff there, but the man the man wasn't far from perfect
2: are you serious, are you serious?
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Seriously Wrong with Coffee with Comrades. I'm Sean and I'm joined right now by Pearson.
0: Hey y'all what's up it's really great to be here today. Uh, Sean it's always a pleasure to collaborate with you and I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Yeah likewise what's the weather like where you're at?
0: Oh you know it was kind of gloomy and overcast for most of the day. I woke up and it was rainy but it's actually kind of pleasant outside it's uh I, there's like a heat wave going on around all across uh the world and and it's hitting our our comrades in europe particularly hard there's like roads are melting and breaking and like you know and there are huge um swaths of portugal and spain ablaze from wildfires but it but it's like i i feel uh i feel selfish because it's like really It's really pleasant here. It's really
1: nice. It's decent here as well. A little bit overcast. That actually, it makes me think, you know, the subject we're talking about today is the status of children in the world. And this climate crisis, which has been sort of created by, let's just say previous generations and handed on to us, is really going to be affecting the young people of the world as we go into the future. And it seems relevant to me that we connect it to the ongoing climate crisis because ultimately the people who are going to pay for the climate crisis aren't going to be the people who are responsible for it. And there is a sort of gerontocratic element to that.
0: Yeah, totally. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's weird, my friend, I, every time I hear something, you know, in the news about Plankton dying off or about widespread forest fires or whatever it might be. And then one of the kids comes downstairs and grabs a snack or jumps onto the couch to play their switch. I I always have this, pang of guilt that i'm not doing more and like i know that's not productive but it is something that it's hard not to have like existential anxiety about the world that we're handing down to young people
1: yeah i once had this experience i think i was like really hungover or something i'm just making an excuse because the story involves me crying i want (laughs) to preserve my stoic reputation right Uh, sure you
0: you, the (laughs) stoic reputation of the comic that does the utopian socialist podcast right sure yeah Go on. (laughs) Okay,
1: I admit it. I admit it. I freely and openly cry at the drop of a dime.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, I'm sorry that you cried, but we can always destroy more of the patriarchy while we're at it and shatter the feeble conceptions of masculinity that are imposed upon us.
1: It's true, but not only masculinity, but adulthood, right? Mm -hmm. A baby cries, an adult doesn't cry. Sure, totally. Uh, But no, I was, I think I might've been hungover. It was a little while ago now, but I walked through a park and I'd just been reading stuff about the climate crisis showed up in my feed or basically the prospects for environmental transition. It was on my mind and I walked through a park and it was just absolutely full of children playing who are maybe, say, in the age group of two to six. And there's like a dozen kids there, maybe like a home daycare has brought them to the park or something. And the juxtaposition of the happy children playing and the, just the heavy, life-altering, unpredictable shit of the future, that juxtaposition just brought out this I don't know if it was even guilt, but it was almost, maybe it was guilt, but there's like maybe mourning, fear, lament. It was like almost a tragic moment because was so out of my control, right? Right. I get the sense of what you're talking about of the guilt of not doing enough and how it's going to reflect on future generations. But also, (laughs) at least the anxiety you're not doing enough is rooted in a sense that you have agency and power in the world (laughs) and that you failed to meet it. I had this feeling of I had no agency or power over it, which isn't totally true. And then maybe that's the hangover.
0: That's true. I mean, but it is worth saying, though, Sean, I mean, since we are talking about kids and how scary it is to look soberly into the future. Sometimes literally in the case of having a hangover. I do think it's worth remarking that the kids are not fucking around when it comes to climate justice and to fighting to secure an ecologically livable future. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And it's hard not to be inspired by story after story of young people doing huge walkouts at their schools, people going to Atlanta, Georgia to try and stop Cop City and to defend the forest. You know, there are things that are happening every day, and it's young people increasingly who are of the next generation, the generation after you and I, who are willing to put their bodies on the line to try and secure a livable future for us all. And I think that's really beautiful and inspiring. And so I think on the one hand, it's hard not to lament that lack of security and to feel that sense of destabilization and that sense of powerlessness. But every time that I do start to feel that sensation, I try to remind myself to like, look at what the kids are doing because it's fucking rad.
1: Totally. Yeah. No, look for the helpers. That's a Mr. Rogers, his mother's tip as well. It's like, look for what people are doing. And it's definitely the case that people are doing stuff. I want to return to this. Maybe let's let's come back around to the environment at the end of the episode. But we've got a great discussion already recorded on the status of children in society built on reflections after we read some books together. Well, we each read a book. I read Raising Free People by Akila S. Richards, and you read Escape from Childhood by John C. Holt.
0: That's right, because we're a bunch of fucking nerds and we read books.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. Nerd. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll take it. I'll, I didn't prepare any long rambles about what it means to be called a nerd in the world, but I feel <laughs> one sort of bubbling inside me a little bit
0: listen man it's a positive thing it's praise
1: it's not an insult thank you well the nerd in me recognizes the nerd in you you know (laughs) i have a kinship today's episode of coffee with comrades is brought to you by gerontocracy Now look, we love children, and we even love young adults, which we consider to be large children in a pejorative sense, but when it comes to really hammering down politically how leadership and command and control is structured in society, as far as we're concerned, there's only one option, rule by the old, gerontocracy.
0: But shouldn't we try to have political power distributed amongst all generations in a way which is neither biased towards or against the elderly?
1: No, we shouldn't, and you're going to young person jail.
0: What? What? No, no, no!
1: Gerontocracy is a society that centralizes power into the hands of the rich and elderly, and by extension, is therefore ruled for the benefit of the rich and elderly. And look, kids, we find you inspiring and everything, climate protests, cute signs, but the senior citizens that run our society just have fundamentally different interests than you, and that's reflected in the choices made by our political class. So, sorry, and fuck you. Gerontocracy. Because old guys rule, uh, Sean. It's so good to be with you today, buddy. Yeah, it's great to uh, to be here with you as well, Pearson, and uh, to talk about such an interesting subject today, which is the personhood of children, small humans,
0: the tiny ones, the the, the little ones.
1: I read Akilah S. Richards' book, uh, "Raising Free People." It's a semi autobiographical guide to unschooling and deschooling from the perspective of someone who is very much concerned with the autonomy, dignity, freedom of children. The book that you read was...
0: Escape from Childhood by John C. Holt, which is, uh, if, if folks are unfamiliar with John C. Holt, Holt is a, uh, one of the preeminent scholars on the subject of, of children's liberation, as I understand it, um, especially in re- more recent decades. And Holt's work, Escape from Childhood, is, is, is kind of considered to be his treatise on the subject, where he kind of lays out most of his ideas about it. Uh, and it's the, the work that kind of put him on the map as a theorist on this subject, Um, And so we thought that these two books would riff off of each other well and allow for a fruitful dialogue that looks at the different emergent possibilities for children and for young people in the world today, how those uh, potentialities are often stymied and what we can do as people who are interested in freedom and emancipation and in self-direction to empower children and to... Uh, not impugn their dignity and their quality of life.
1: Yeah, and escape from childhood. From the bits of it that I read, it was a lot more polemical. Very, uh, a lot more, um, very cognitive book. Very theoretical. Uh, very, yeah. It was. It, it's a it's sort of a a polemical tear on the way that adults don't take children seriously, don't listen to children, don't believe in the inner worlds of children. And in contrast, uh, Raising Free People, and both very interesting books, Raising Free People, it's a lot more autobiographical, oriented towards pragmatic questions of parenting. And uh, yeah, I think the two do complement each other pretty well. So I guess, yeah, on the top level, recognizing the full personhood and dignity of children is something that can be a little bit challenging for adults like us, because we are raised in a society, we we are raised uh, as children in a society that subtly denigrates children. Like for example, um, the term childish as a term of derision means that you're behaving like a child instead of an adult and to behave like a child instead of an adult is somehow contemptible, negative. It's a a lack of maturity, for example. So we're kind of raised in this stew of ideas that apply normative values on adultness versus child, childishness. And so we have this sort of perspective, our inherited perspective when it comes to parent-child relations or adult-child relations is that children are these chaotic things that can't be trusted. They have to be controlled and disciplined by adults.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really important to continuously point out that this is a ideological function of like how society operates, especially in like our our, our modern contemporary society. But it's also one that's really new. Uh it's this is a new way of, of thinking about kids as being less than human in many ways. Um and it's something that John C. Holt talks about pretty extensively in Escape from Childhood is that these um these attitudes towards kids, which we are of course not immune to because as you pointed out, Sean you know, there's this replicating cycle of ideology for people who grow up thinking these things and learning these things. We end up recycling them and and reiterating them um, often without even thinking. But I think it's worth noting that this is a a relatively new phenomenon. It's not something that uh, has been historically the case throughout different societies. Um, And it's something that is... Pretty recent, all told. Um, it wasn't that long ago that children were in fact treated as adults. They had to go to work and often worked very, very long hours. They were treated as being capable of helping around the house, even from a very young age, doing chores and, um, what, tending to, you know, the, the critters and making sure that the farm was, was operating properly. And so I think that's a, an important vector to consider as well.
1: Right. And I I haven't read it, but I understand there's this book called Centuries of Childhood uh, that was written in the 1960s that basically puts forward the, the thesis that our modern idea of childhood and children is something that's new in a historical context.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that text either, but I'd love to check it out at some point. That sounds kind of exactly what I'm talking about here.
1: But yeah, to quote Akilah S. Richards, she says, our society treats children as a group that cannot be trusted and needs to be guided, usually through punishment, physical violence, and forced education. And they should be given little to no input in how they spend the majority of their time. So in practice, we'll often ignore and dismiss the needs of children, the things that they say that they want or need. And the effect, uh, according to Akilah in the book, she makes the point that this has the cumulative effect of we train children to doubt themselves. We reinforce the idea that their opinions don't matter when we ignore them or we force them to do things against their will. Basically that we push children to be out of touch with their intuitions by having this strict hierarchical authoritarian mode of adult child Um, and then furthermore we use children as proxies for ourselves as parents we try to discipline children into lives which are in service of observing parents desires for them instead of living for themselves and as far as i can tell that's just that's that's true that's all true these are very (laughs) things that should be uh, considered carefully uh, when it comes to interacting with children and raising children
0: yeah, absolutely, and yet it's it's funny because it it seems that they're not things that are are considered carefully, right? Like it, it, and I'm not sure altogether sure why that is. Um, my my I have my my suspicions, and you know my ideas about why that might be. Some of them are are a little bit more generous and give adults uh, the benefit of the doubt, whereas others are perhaps a bit more cynical. But it is remarkable that like this is not a subject that is addressed nearly enough, even in ostensibly leftist milieus where people are interested in liberation and and the liberation of humans, the liberation of animals. We often neglect to include the liberation of children. Um, And I think that really speaks, Sean, to just how inculcated we are with adult supremacist attitudes.
1: Yeah. And I think to anticipate criticisms, when we're talking about advancing dignity, autonomy, and so on for children. Children and youth is a wide spectrum from the age of zero to the age of 18. There's a lot of variety within there. And generally, I think the, the pushback that we would get talking about this is that children require guidance. Children are Naive, uh maybe innocent, ignorant, etc, they're capable of harming themselves or others without the guidance of parents. to what degree do you think that stuff is true what to what degree is John C. Holt think that stuff is true?
0: uh well, I can answer the first part of that much more clearly uh than my own convictions on the matter, uh, which are probably a bit more muddy. I think John C. Holt would would adamantly say that that's bullshit, <laughs> uh, and that like children are pretty well-possessed even from a young age, both evolutionarily and socially with the cues in order to uh, recognize, oh, I shouldn't do X, Y, or Z, right? Whether it's I shouldn't touch the stove because it's hot there, or I shouldn't uh, run out into the road because there are fast cars moving by, right? And so I think that John C. Holt would kind of come down on a sort of like black and white kind of version of this, of this issue where he would kind of say, well, you know, all of that is kind of ridiculous. And all of those, uh, criticisms or critiques of children's liberation are, are fallacious. Um, I, I tend to think that like, that's generally the case. Um, most of the time that, that kids are self-possessed as somebody who cohabitates with two young children has now for over two years. I think that, Pretty clear to me that kids have uh, a lot of agency and a lot of um, understanding about the ways in which they navigate the world. I think uh, Sean, you bring up a, a good point of uh, the you know the, the obvious caveat being you know a, a babe uh, is probably going to require more adult supervision than a teenager, for example. But I think that you know different human beings have the capacity to have greater or less you know, agency and, and, and vision over their own self-direction. Um, and it's it's not really you or I who should be enforcing that. It's, it's rather something that should be self-motivated, right? Like, so for example, like if a child feels that they need to have some guidance, there should be adults in their life, um, either their parents or mentors or um, some other form of teacher, uh, an older sibling, or a friend who can come into their life and and kind of give them guidance. But I think that more often than not, we default to the position that children must have the guidance of adults rather than children have the capacity to seek out guidance when they need it and have the intelligence, uh, both emotional and social, in order to recognize when it is that they might need some help.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things that sometimes get pushed together by uh, advocates of like, say, disciplinarian attitudes. So there's like the incompetence of children is one, the alleged incompetence of children, I should say, rather, uh, is one through line of it. And another is sort of the uh, alleged wickedness of children. Uh, The idea that if you give children freedom, if you give children autonomy, if you ask them what they want to do instead of telling them what they have to do, Inevitably, children are going to make antisocial, self-destructive, socially damaging choices. And the wickedness of children as an a- alleged aspect of children, a cultural and anti-child idea, I disagree with entirely. When it comes to the competence of children, I think there's a, it's a complex conversation when you're talking about 18 years of life. And obviously, the argument for allowing 16-year-olds to vote and the argument for allowing newborn babies to vote are very different arguments.
0: Totally. Yeah. I mean, just to the idea of being, you know, an 18 year old and how much growth you have over 18 years of your life. Clearly, like when you're going from zero to 18, you're going to have a just incredible amount of development intellectually, socially, emotionally, spiritually, et cetera. But that's, Still the case as an, as an adult, it might not be as noticeable, but a, a lot of folks still have the capacity to, to change very greatly and very severely um, from the time that they are 18 till the time that they are, for example, uh, 36, for, for example. But I think that people are correct to recognize, right, that there is a, a distinction in the intellectual and emotional development of kids from zero to 18, because you're, you're learning so much in those first 18 years. Having said that, I agree with you entirely that the idea of uh, children being immoral is uh, fundamentally incorrect uh, erroneous It stems from puritanical ideas about sin and about uh, you know our you know humanity's fallen nature uh, and doesn't grapple with the realities of how our society incentivizes uh, and encourages people to act out, Um, when they are, um, feeling, uh, scared, lonely, threatened, uh, when they don't have, um, security either in their home, uh, or in their school. Um, and so I think that like, it's, it's important to recognize that, you know, if, if, and when children act out the culprit more often than not, not always, but more often than not is the social factors and the social dynamics in which that child finds themselves. Um, that's not to, of course, uh, exculcate any and all culpability from I- individuals and their actions. but it is to point out that like as children in particular who are developing um, and who are uh, still you know growing and, and, and their brains are getting larger and they're making more critical connections, children should enjoy more of our grace and more of our understanding uh, rather than less of it, which is I think what you get a lot of times with these anti-child sentiments of well, children are just immoral and, and, and fundamentally bad and if you give them freedom, then they will act out, uh, as a result.
1: Yeah. And the place where the, it gets really brutal, um, on, on that front is when you have these sort of like very extreme anti-child ideas that are passed around in culture. Like for example, spare the rod, spoil the child. Totally. Uh, the idea that a child is going to be spoiled unless you physically beat them as an adult is a, untenable ethical position but it's unfortunately common in our society uh, to hear that kind of thing so the idea that by sparing sparing the rod you spoil the child is to basically the, the unconscious ideology of that is that children are these wild animals that lash out at everything around them and that the only way that they can be brought to heal is through a disciplinary framework where they're controlled to be passive, obedient, and so on, through the act of violence. That, that sort of idea of like taming the wild beast of the child is this really deeply anti-child, and by extension, anti-human idea, because it's worth noting that children aren't some outside group. Children are all of us. All of us have experienced childhood. All of us have, have experienced prejudice against children. All of us have come through a developmental trajectory where the fact that we were young was held against us, or used against us, or preventing us from having autonomy and expressing ourselves, prevented us from developing freely into the people that we might have otherwise become by our own authority, you know? So all that to say that this uh, this idea of children as this sort of beast that needs to be tamed is this very, like, inhumane idea of children as less than human, um, I think is something that we should really stand up against. And it's also worth differentiating. So there is such a thing as, say, a mis, uh, an antisocial misbehavior of a child, and we could talk about why that would arise in a specific. Child and at a specific time and etc., but there's also the conflation of that with any sort of anti-authoritarian um, or any sort of self-directed attitude in a child is interpreted by society as a child that needs to be reeled in by an adult, um, totally. and that the <laughs> the a child acting that way is a sign that there's an adult nearby who's failing.
0: Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's uh we we recently had Brucey e. Levine on the podcast. Um, And he had, you know, a a very interesting kind of chapter about this idea of anti-authoritarian personality disorders, uh, which is this way that, you know, people have been characterized historically. Uh, It's one of the um, qualifiers for a lot of psychological diagnoses for people. And it's wild to think that like the perfectly legitimate response of a child being oppressed by adults and, and, and acting in a way that's standards with opposing that authority, which is unjustified and unjustifiable, is is somehow cause for uh, a a, a neurodivergence or for a lack of neurotypicality. It speaks volumes to the type of repressive society that we live in, which deems adults as greater than children and and, and deems children as lesser than human. And this idea, I think, of authority is, is really central to questions of children's liberation. And I I think it's, I feel confident speaking uh, for both of us when I say it's one of the things that grinds both of our gears about this particular issue is that so much of this stems from patriarchal authority and, 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 you know, people are terrified, right. Of the erosion of patriarchal authority, you know, for, for so long fathers have been the tyrant of their own household where they are the, the sort of prototypical figure that gets to decide what does or does not happen. Um, In his book, John C. Holt writes a lot about the idea that patriarchal authority and its erosion is one of the things that's contributing to the backlash against ch- children's liberation is oftentimes people cling to whatever vestige of authority that they can. And one of the most traditional uh, places that that is found, right, is, is in the household. And so it's, I think, remarkable that the idea that human beings are afraid of losing the authority over their children is one of the things that is really central to this conversation about children's liberation.
1: Totally. Yeah, I think it's one of the big challenges with having this conversation. Um, Like you're saying this, people live in a society that beats them down day after day, hundreds or thousands of different ways. They go to work and they're under the boot of their boss. They're under the boot of their landlord. You know, there's all these boots that they're under. And then, like it or not, these people, they go home to an environment, a domestic sphere, where culturally, they're given a blank check of authority, in particular with regards to their children, which are treated as extensions of them um, or as their property. And there is the element of having that sort of command and control, punish authority of a subservient group of people at your house that can be an intoxicating thing where it's, it's a little thing they can grab onto in a society that's otherwise crushing them.
3: Absolutely. Um,
1: and that might be part of the reason why people get so defensive uh, and white-knuckle about their sort of right and privilege to punish, control, and treat their children as subservient property that's an extension of themselves. Um, and Like, so often you run into very, very indignant, like the idea that you're questioning someone else's parenting is like the third rail for a lot of parents. Like you're, you're allowed to talk about anything, but any sort of implication that someone has done something could be harmful or negative towards their own children. It's like an infringement of their property rights or something.
4: (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. And I, again, that alone should speak volumes um, that we continue to kind of regard children either implicitly and sometimes even legally explicitly as property of adults Sean I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of uh, the family um, which I think comes up inexorably in in conversations about children's liberation it's one of the things that you know we're kind of circling around here and so I just wanted to cut to the heart of it by talking about about family and and, and how we conceive of that term, because I think that a lot of uh, proponents of child's liberation, or children's liberation rather, uh, tend towards a philosophy of familial abolition. And I have talked about this before on Coffee with Comrades, and it's it's something that I am sympathetic to. But I'm curious about your thoughts on, on the idea of the abolition of the family and, and what do you think that discourse does or does not offer to uh, conversations regarding children's liberation?
1: I think there are there are ways to approach a discussion on sort of like the abolition of the family as a social role that could be productive, useful interventions. Um, My familiarity with the subject, I haven't done a deep wide read into like different takes on it. I I think of it as being a very controversial position based mostly on people misinterpreting and speaking past each other, but that is sort of an outside point of view, um, (laughs) having not done the reading.
0: No that's that's totally the case. But there's a lot of things like uh, that in
1: politics, right? Where someone we there's a an, asser, uh, an assertion that's made that's a bold assertion and then the response to it is not necessarily to like the substance of what's being asserted but it's like the response to the meme and then the memes are responding to each other and then there's this discursive loop of arguing past each other talking past each other but yeah like the the inherited familial structure that i think goes back to like roman property law of like the father at the head of the household and the the mother and the children and the slaves being property of him certainly seems like something worth abolishing to me (laughs) Totally. (laughs) But yeah,
0: yeah. and to your point, you know, in many ways, that particular system has been abolished. We still, of course, feel the ramifications of it. It is still very much a implicit architecture of violence and coercion, command and control that exists within larger conversations about about patriarchy and, and about patriarchal violence. Um, but as a, as a formal legalized system, that, that system has been abolished, uh, thank the fucking, uh, stars. Um, however, I think your point about people talking past each other on this subject is, is spot on. And, And I think that it's one of those things where I think we could all stand to calm the fuck down for two minutes and like, Try and understand rather than respond. Right? Uh, it's one of those situations where I think that if people um, shut the fuck up and 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 asked follow up questions and tried to understand rather than immediately responding with that whatever the like the emotional uh, gut level feeling is, we we could learn a lot. Because as somebody who like really loves their family, I also am like on board with the broad strokes of like what most proponents of Family familial abolition advocate, and it's 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 broadly this this program of trying to create uh, a more capacious idea of, of what the familial unit is, um, and that to me is, is is language that I think is much more productive because it's generative. It's about including rather than excluding. Um, it's about incorporating rather than fleeing. Uh, And I think it's language that allows us to think about how, uh, as John C. Holt kind of suggests, children um, have just as much agency over those interactions as adults do um, John C Holt perhaps famously uh, is known for advocating for among other things that children should be allowed to leave their familial home and uh, like freely voluntarily associate uh, with other families and and become incorporated as part of those family units and again that's something I'm broadly kind of on board with uh, and understand um, and I think you know a lot of familial abolitionists would be on board with as well. You're really spot on when uh, it's one of the many instances where people talking past each other rather than just listening.
1: In the context of youth liberation too, that was something I was thinking about going into this conversation. What does youth liberation mean to different people and how could we pull out in this conversation things that could be useful for people? How to think about, like one of the critiques that I've run i in, ran into when asking other people about youth liberation is sort of this idea that Critiques of the school system and uh, critiques of the way that children are treated in society is like the domain of privileged activists who are just like looking for things to be outraged about, about their own sort of privileged lives that they, because they don't face, uh, they haven't faced all these uh, sort of like external threats that the oppressed, non-privileged people face. They have to like latch on to their school experience or something is an example of their oppression. I I, I don't agree with that. I don't think that is the the animating force here. But I was thinking about, like, how do we navigate how much definition wobble? Like, because for me, when I think about youth liberation, I think about, you know, children being imprisoned. I think about children being imprisoned by the state. I think about systemic biases, prejudices against children that mean that children don't get a say in their own lives, um, and i don 't say this to complain about my school experience, although I definitely could complain about it if you wanted to get into that um, <laughs> but I, I my interest in it is a concern for you know children and youth out in the world who are being deprived opportunities to self develop and who into who they they rightfully should become, who they want to become, who they can become. I think when it comes to thinking about the freedom, autonomy, dignity of children. We can recognize that this is something that has impacted every single person, every single adult is affected by these constructs which devalue children and also sort of train children to think of childishness as something that is bad and adultness, which is something that is good. That tell them things like this is the best time of your life and the time when they're confused, oppressed, held places against their will, that deny them opportunities to to grow and learn in the directionality that they prefer. Um, that doesn't listen to them when they say what they're feeling or thinking. It's um, something that affects everyone, um, and it's also intricately interconnected with other types of oppression. I generally don't like the tendency for people to use privileged is kind of a pejorative word to write something, someone or something off, especially when in the realm of ideas, like I don't think there is most of the time when we're having these intra left disputes, we're picking out which ideas are privileged and which ideas are not. It's not really a productive conversation. It's just sort of a a flag that people can put up.
0: If we're going to call it privilege, we should name what it is, right? It's one of the things that I talk with my students about is like, don't call it privilege, call it white supremacy. Don't call it privilege, call it patriarchy. Don't call it privilege, call it heteronormativity, right? Like I think that it's it's important to identify these things precisely and to use language that is correct and is succinct and is direct because otherwise we get into a, a position in which we are uh, sort of pejoratively saying this thing is just, you know, a product of your privilege, in much the same way as as many leftists are are quick to throw around the word liberal when they when somebody is engaging in an action they don't like. You're like, oh, you're just being a lib, right? Like it's that same kind of thing, and it's it's an attempt to shut down rather than to understand. And I think that your point, Sean, about the interconnectivity and the intersectionality and interstitial nature of childhood is necessarily bound up in the the intricate matrix of oppressions that people experience every day um, and and that it's inseparable from it. And, and, And the axiom that no one is free until we're all free rings true here as well.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the issues with the the term privilege being used in this specific way is how it's an allusion to something, but it's not an explanation of what's going on. Exactly like you said, if there is a good critique to be made or if there is a preference that people want to express, like, for example, I prefer to focus on X, Y and Z matters rather than children's matters for X, Y and Z reasons. Fair enough but sometimes these terms they become these stand in for analysis that could actually ge- be generative when it comes to conversation
0: i think that the we do a disservice to ourselves we do a disservice to our comrades and we do a disservice to all oppressed peoples when we s- suggest with these th- this this sort of declarative anger and and definitive nat- definitive nature that like This issue is more important than that issue, so you need to focus on this issue and not on that issue, right? I think that we are indelibly indebted to uh, the black feminist-like thinkers who who pioneered the idea of intersectionality and, and, and how... How, how vital that is uh to getting free. Um and, and I think it's also worth mentioning that like some people are going to necessarily be drawn to different types of work than other people and like that's okay and good that we can all collaborate and work together and that like your issue that you're passionate about that's awesome and and fuck yeah that rules and I wish you godspeed but other people are going to be you know uh activated by other issues.
1: Yeah, one of the things too that Akila S. Richards in her book mentioned that I found very, it hit deep in the implications for me is that the the role of the student under the adult gaze, uh, or studenthood is a term that she uses, um, and the adult gaze is like the the gaze that expects children to meet parental expectations. She draws a mm-hmm. parallel between that sort of gaze and other gazes of oppressors on oppressed and basically says that, One of the risks that we are potentially exposing ourselves to when we are training children into this subservient role under the threat of punishment, where they abridge themselves to meet expectations of adults around them, whether those are student or whether those are uh, student teacher relationships or child parent relationships, that we are inculcating these children in a method of relating to other people, which is about. Appeasing whatever authority happens to be there.
0: Yeah, no, totally, and I, I'm glad you brought up that point about about the gaze and the ways in which we look at children with this kind of expectant look, um, because John C. Holt writes about how children are really good at at reading faces. They are they have a a, a knack for quickly recognizing things. And I've found this in my own fumbling attempts at parenting when I am irritated or when I am frustrated, whether it's with the kids or or with something else entirely, they're incredibly perceptive about picking up on that kind of stuff. Um, And John C. Holt writes, uh, quote, children are sensitive to faces like all slaves, all powerless people. They learn to look at and read the faces of their rulers in order to sense what will or may happen next. Um, and I think that that really ties up well with this idea that you're noting of of, of the colonial gaze or the male gaze or uh, the school teacher's gaze, the parent the parental gaze. um because what ends up happening is this uh, self-replicating cycle where the oppressed individual ends up uh, interpolating that gaze and thinking that they, you know, it's their fault. It's something that they've done and that, you know, this is uh, an inescapable cycle. And I think that children in particular are even more susceptible to that because they uh, often have uh, yet to to fully develop uh, their mental faculties to be able to think critically about why um, that face might be looking at them in in consternation, right? Um, it, it, It has to be because of something that they did because of cause and effect. It couldn't be because of that individual's twisted, backwards view that they are somehow superior to a child
1: right and yeah and and worse still than having a brain that's not fully developed is is having a brain that's developing developing in relation to the environment uh that they're in um that their sense of self their sense of place in the universe whether or not they trust themselves what they believe and think is being shaped by the threat of punishment and the power of authority which isn't a good training ground for critical thinking adults who are ready to challenge the injustices of the world. It's just the opposite.
4: Papa and boy. Dad, I don't want to do this homework. It's making me feel like a depressed child. Listen,
3: boy, I I know you hate your homework, but unfortunately, you just got to do it.
4: Why? Why do you have to do something that doesn't make sense and doesn't help me?
3: Well, you got to do it because authority tells you to, and you got to listen to authority. They're in that position for a reason.
4: But Papa, I don't even think the teachers have adequately justified the existence of homework to me. I want to bring it up as a public debate at school among us students and teachers, but the teachers won't let me.
3: Now, boy, you stop trying to incite a directly democratic agora at school and focus on doing your work under the authority of your teacher.
4: But there's studies showing that homework has detrimental effects on students. A 2006 National Scholastic Yankovic study in the U.S. found that reading for fun sharply declined after age eight. And the number one reason given was too much homework homework eats into time which can be used for physical exercise, play, self-directed learning, and social activities and all these things positively impact academic performance. And obviously homework has a disproportionately negative effect on lower income students. I think we should debate it at school.
3: Look, boy, if you keep on citing studies to me instead of doing your homework, I'm going to turn to Old Faithful and give you a bare ass spanking, just like your grandfather did to me.
4: But Papa, you can't tell me not to cite studies and then say that. There's so much evidence spanking is detrimental to the development and even the behavior of children you're making me want to cite it the don't evidence cite
3: is- it bucko you're on thin ice I got spanked and look at me I turned out just fine but look
4: okay papa school is like a prison it's like a factory they're treating me like a jar they can fill with knowledge they're trying to get me to parrot things and bow my head down and move according to rhythmic bells it's a humiliating experience that's insulting to my capacity of mind and I don't like it I have no say what's going on I don't like homework and the materials not engaging.
3: Look, boy, I'll level with you. I was young once, too. I remember the bells and the boring teachers and the treasuring of every sweet moment of self-directed freedom against the arbitrary command of adults. I remember slouching into anonymity amongst masses of undifferentiated students, silently imagining an alternative universe where I boldly stood up and I said no to the forces that acted upon me. I remember developing a, a rich fantasy life where showing a cold exterior, numbly following the commands while fundamentally limiting my expression out of fear of reprisal. I learned to hide how I felt. Soon, that turned to not trusting how I felt. I remember thinking it would be better if we had a say in our own education. It would be better if we have privacy. It would be better if children should be seen as human beings with not only human rights, but to go further into special rights for children that reinforce and strengthen society as a whole. But guess what? I grew up.
4: Papa, this has been a really... Has
3: it been disheartening? Well, that's too yeah. bad. Because you're <laughs> under my roof and you're under my rules. And I get to have the last word because i pay for that roof and I'll pay for those rules. And that's final. Papa and boy...
1: The way that this adult-child dichotomy is institutionalized across society is a lot through um, very like regressive common sense, uh, like we mentioned before, stuff like spare the rod, spoil the child, the inherent wickedness of the child, etc. That also it transfers into a variety of contexts, not just a parent and their child, but also in the school system, but also in institutions that deal with even the welfare of children or try to advance the rights of children, but do so in ways that aren't rooted in like actually like listening to children, treating them as subjectivities, instead treating them as like political footballs. Uh, <laughs> the the think of the children arguments or who which side is really thinking of the children and which is not. right. There's like this complex sort of ideological maelstrom that similarly to like how patriarchal ideas are s- spread so deeply in the common sense of society that it's reflected in all of the institutions that deal with women or gender, all the institutions that deal with children because of all this sort of toxic common sense about children, the vast majority of the time move forward in ways that aren't to the benefit of children based on these ideas that are just fallacious.
0: Yeah. I think that there's something to be said about this, this movement, uh, from, you know, these discrete relationships between human beings, um, both, both child and adult and, and how that gets replicated on, on a larger scale. And I think the preeminent, social institution that that happens and the way it becomes systematized is, is in the school. And I think that that's why so much, maybe sometimes too much, of the literature regarding children's liberation is wrapped up in conversations about the school. and And I think that there's this tendency to hyper fixate on the school as the premier locus of children's oppression and of adult supremacy. And, and I think, you know, there are some good reasons for that right like in school children often have to raise their hand uh to go to the bathroom much less raise their hand to interject into a class discussion kids are shuttled from one class to the next having to follow a strict bell schedule they are allowed to eat certain things they are allowed to speak only when spoken to more often than not and i think that the the school is really the bastion in which uh this this milieu of of terrible awful ideas festers uh, like a like a wretched stew in a cauldron uh, and becomes the thing that gets served to everybody, which then again of course becomes self replicating, right? Because kids are, spend the majority of their their young lives at school and thus mature into adults, uh, internalizing these. Regressive, often uh, conservative views a- about what it means to be uh, a child, and and in doing so, I think the pattern uh, continues to cycle and cycle and cycle. You mentioned earlier too that like this idea that like uh, f- that adults often say that children like these are the best years of your life. You better enjoy it now because soon you're going to have to go to work.
1: And they'll say that when they're like crying. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Like, how dare you not be
1: happy right now?
0: Like, your your feelings are totally unnecessary and aren't fair because I uh, am an adult and I have to suffer. And you should be thankful for what you have now. You know, it's that kind of mentality, and it's a deeply reactionary, deeply conservative mentality, which says, "Well, I suffered, so now you have to suffer too." It's that kind of uh, of thinking that is so. Um, part and parcel to reactionary conservative political ideology. But I think that one of the things that Holt identifies that's that's really noteworthy is this idea that people grow up and end up resenting the quote-unquote the walled garden of childhood because they don't get to be in there forever, right? They end up resenting children uh, because they have this mythologized idea of children being young and and being free, when in reality, uh, childhood is deeply repressive. Uh, And and it's one of the instances in which uh, you often lack a whole host of freedoms.
1: Even just like the the very fundamental freedom to say, like, stop touching me, don't grab me, don't carry me, don't pick me up, leave me alone. The, The walled garden of childhood being like, you get to play with toys and not have to go to work and not worry about money, in exchange for well there's these giants who are allowed to carry you (laughs) uh, and pinch pinch your cheeks kiss you and uh you're supposed to be cute for them um that it's i don't know if that's a total garden of eden idea if like if if there were giants regularly (laughs) coming coming to pick me up and pinch me and kiss me against my will, even if I said no. And actually, if I did say no, they'd think there was something defective with me and something defective with them. There's something defective with my human. And so therefore, (laughs) there must be something wrong with me unless I punish them. I'm getting self-conscious. All the other giants see that my human is resisting me. So I'm going to be really brutal with this human. Yeah, I think the reality of the situation is a lot more complex than childhood just being this this pure time. I, I think
0: that the kids have a opportunity to like experiment and explore and discover because of the fact that they aren't working. But that is so often mitigated by the fact that the adults in their life are saying, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Uh, this is the, the time that... Uh, you have to be home uh, at night. This is the time that you need to wake up in the morning. These are the chores that you have to do. Or I will ground you and take away your video games or whatever the thing might be, right? Like there's certainly a tendency, um, I think uh, I, I think on, on, on the left, but also perhaps more explicitly on the right, that tends to look at children as being these uh, angelic, idyllic, perfect little creatures that must be protected at all costs. And what ends up happening is we end up babying them and pa- patronizing them and looking down on them rather than treating them as individuals capable of of thought and free expression and creativity and exploration, capable of, of failure and fucking up and, and learning from those failures. And for those failures to not be these monumental things that ruin them and, and that totally make them like non-functional in, in society, uh, but give them an opportunity to learn something and, and to grow and to change and to expand. And I think that we do a disservice to the young people in our lives when we baby them and, and look down upon them, both <laughs> in a in a pejorative sense uh, and in a, in a literal physical sense, when we're literally looking down on them, I think we should look, look at children, uh, at, at eye level. I think there's something to be said for like kneeling down and looking at kids directly.
1: Yeah. The liberatory potential of crouching.
0: <laughs> yes. The liberatory potential of crouching. Exactly. I, I, that sounds ridiculous, Sean, but I'm, I'm like dead ass. <laughs> like that is a thing. Like it's a, it's one of the reasons why like you know, they're my, my students are adults, but it's one of the reasons why I don't stand up and lecture with my students. Like I sit with them and like, we all sit in a circle and and have a conversation. Uh, It's the reason why if I'm, you know, with the kids I try to like sit uh sit down on the couch beside them or if they're at the the kitchen table and sit at the couch or sit at the the kitchen table with them or crouch down and look at them It, it does sound ridiculous but like there is something about body language and about the way that we present ourselves as uh authority figures being above someone like physically it conveys something implicitly in the dynamic and in the body language you know what I mean
1: for sure. And th- there's another thing I wanted to say about the condescending sentimentality towards children, the the fragile treasure idea, the innocent fragile treasure thing. Part of that and there could be kind of a sweetness or a well-meaningness to this this belief, this construct of children, condescending sentimentality, but also really really key to that idea of innocence. This adult idea of childhood innocence is that children are naive, they're uninformed, and they're foolish, they're ignorant. Holt points out these are all things that children wouldn't really want to identify as. Like children aren't like, oh, I'm a naive and uninformed, foolish little kid. That's not that's not ways that people tend to interpret themselves or would want to interpret themselves. Of
0: course not. Yeah. Of course not.
1: (laughs) In that process, we're sort of training children to think of themselves as irresponsible, incompetent, ignorant, and foolish. And these are things that children wouldn't be thinking about themselves if it weren't those things weren't being projected on them. But Holt makes a further point that I found very fascinating, very interesting, which is that some of the things that we are putting under the category of innocent um, are actually things that are valuable in everyone, specifically hopefulness, trustfulness, confidence, The feeling that the world is open to you, the feeling that life has many possibilities, the feeling that what we don't know we can find out, the things that we can't do we can learn to do, these are things that are called sort of innocent In this framework of condescending sentimentality towards children but since these things are valuable features in anyone and we're tying it to being naive being uninformed and foolish there's kind of a a crypto critique of these good things being stuffed in there We're, we're actually criticizing hopefulness the feeling that the world is open to you that life has many possibilities as naive uninformed foolish and childish um, when there are actually things that are valuable, skills and dispositions towards navigating life at any age, and I found that point very salient in as you know i 'm politically interested in uh, informed naivety and hopefulness in navigating a complex world and and the belief that what you don't know you can find out these are all things that are really valuable to me and uh, he he laid out how this construct of these ideas being associated with childishness it's bad for kids and it's bad for adults.
0: I think that's a really salient point and And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it is one that's worth hammering home again and again. I, I also wanted to touch on something you mentioned uh, a moment earlier, which is this idea that like kids aren't going to often like self-identify, right? As being naive, being ignorant, uh, not knowing. Uh, and in fact, when you treat a child as if, they know nothing. What is the child very likely to say? Stop treating me like a child, right? It's this like, it's a self replicating thing that we've been kind of identifying, right? Which is like, we have these tendencies, we have these these habits of treating children like children. Uh, and, and I mean that in the, the negative sense, like to, to treat someone as a child, children recognize it, right? And I think that um, what we ought to be doing instead is recognizing the potential uh, for children to discover, for them to learn, for them to have hope, um, and for them to grow and and, and be challenged. Um, I think that there's this really good book called Unconditional Parenting. I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but he's, he has this idea that We should always treat children commensurate with as if they are acting the best that they can, right? Like that should be the default position. So like if a child is having a meltdown, right? Well, it's not because they want to be having a meltdown. Like nobody wants to have a fucking meltdown. Nobody wants to lose their shit. Nobody wants to cry and wail and make a scene in public. But that's the only thing that the, the only way that they can respond to the situation. Right. And so instead of treating them punitively, instead of punishing them, instead of penalizing, we should try and seek to understand what's going on. Right. Like what could have uh, occurred in this particular situation. Right. That uh, has uh, catalyzed this particular response from this child and i think that it's a it's a really uh, helpful framework and it's been deeply instructive to me as a parent is, is recognizing that children are always going to be doing their best because they want to do their best. They want to be happy. They want to be healthy. They want to do well. They're not acting out because they want attention. They're not acting out because they're trying to penalize you. It's usually because something has happened. And I think that it's a useful framework to add on to conversations about children's liberation is that like, you know, these, these, Situations that we find ourselves in, in which, you know, proponents of more regressive or or repressive forms of adult-child relations might suggest, oh, well, you know, child X is... Um, having a temper tantrum right now because they didn't get their toy uh, that they wanted to play with. When in reality, uh, what's going on is perhaps the child feels lonely or isolated. Maybe that toy was the only thing that allowed them to like have a sense of like fun and creativity while they were on the playground. Maybe they don't have a lot of friends, and so having that toy is the thing that they use and they go to in order to you know have a sense of enjoyment during their free time, right? And I think that when we take a step back and, and look at children and, and understand them through that lens, um, we can do the same thing with Adult people as well, right? Um, That people generally want to be doing good. Like this is it's 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 such a silly thing to say, Sean. But it's like it's. I think it's a really deeply important point that like people want to feel well. People want to feel safe. People want to feel secure. And when children or adults act in ways that are You know, maybe not commensurate with what we would expect from them. Oftentimes, that's because they aren't feeling safe. They aren't feeling secure. They don't feel stable.
1: The principle of charity works very well towards children. Works very well to adults. You know, assuming that people are trying their best and that they're they're not maliciously twiddling their mustache, planning to like somehow damage (laughs) or attack you. Ah, I'll really get them this time. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm a baby who's gonna start crying. Like because fuck my parents. I don't know. I don't think that's a thing. But also the way that people act as adults is shaped directly by their childhood. Um, You know, children are people. People are people. Children are people. Adults are children that have just grown up. What people do as adults are is a result of their cumulative uh, childhood experience. So you might, if if an adult is quote unquote, misbehaving, um, behaving in ways that don't meet your uh, um, ideals for other how other adults should be behaving around you, then it's almost certainly uh, at least in part shaped by the strategies for navigating the world that they developed in childhood um, in relation to authority figures and parents and, and so on. So, yeah, again, very deeply interconnected.
0: This episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Mizepity. Mizepity, an abnormal hatred for children. Because who needs the bright, cheerful voices of children ringing incessantly in your ears? Children don't have complex inner lives. That child wailing and crying on your flight is not a human being in distress, they're just a pet. Little better than an adult's property. Misepity seamlessly provides a foundational layer for cementing human hierarchies because the subordination of children is seen as perfectly natural. It doesn't just impact children, it also informs imperialism, settler colonialism, patriarchy, gerontocracy, and countless other intersecting social ills. Misepony, oppress the children, oppress the world.
4: I
1: don't know, I feel like I've got a lot to think about from reading this book.
0: Yeah, same, same. It was a very illuminating experience, but at the same time, I very much feel like I still have so much to learn. It's weird, Sean. I feel like I'm in such a unique and special place and I'm constantly humbled by the fact that I get to interact pretty much daily with my partner's kids in particular and kind of see how they're growing and how they're responding to the world. And on the one hand, it's really inspiring to see the ways in which they are responding to unjustified hierarchies in the world and and responding to childism, responding to misopedia and like... Realizing, hey, like I deserve to be treated better, whether it is an orthodontist who's not listening to one of the kids when they say they're in pain or When it is somebody who is at a gymnastics meeting who is yelling about their kid doing better and not performing up to the standards that this parent has thrust upon them, regardless of whether the child even wants to meet those standards or whether they just want to have fun. It's such a weird headspace to be in, and, and it's really humbling to get to have that opportunity to care for kids in such a intentional way. But it's also no bullshit. It's like fucking terrifying because you're like, what if I fuck up? And what what happens when I do fuck up? And you're constantly second guessing yourself and, you know, worrying about their future and, and about what if something that I said becomes a kernel of fear and self doubt and trauma for them. And, and so it's like this place of real beauty and joy and productivity of getting to invest in the lives of two young kids. But it's also legitimately fucking terrifying, especially when you consider just how uncertain the future is with climate change, with the creeping reactionary politics that seem to be pervasive these days. It's a scary time to be alive, but it's really inspiring to see the way that kids are standing up for themselves and standing up for their future and standing up for one another. It's a beautiful thing to behold.
1: Something occurred to me. It's kind of a random question. It's kind of a juicy question that I'd love to pose to political parents. In The Child and Its Enemies by Emma Goldman, she has this sort of a side about The social democratic father can point to his little girl of six and say, who wrote Capital Deary? And she says, Karl Marx, pa. And the the anarchistic mother names the kids after anarchist figures and stuff. And it's kind of this critique of the parents' political expression being reflected on the child as an example of this kind of stuff. How do you navigate that? If you're dealing with kids that are being inspiring and cool, how do you discern where the agency starts and begins in practice? I'm really curious about this.
0: Yeah, totally. No, I think it's a good question. And to be honest, I wish I could give you a better answer because the reality is I'm constantly second guessing it myself, right? Like how much of it is the kids saying like, oh, this is the thing that I believe, or, you know, ACAB because they hear me say it, or, what have you, but I think that when we do that in a certain way, it's kind of paradoxical Sean, but I, I think in a certain way we we start to divorce kids of their own agency because kids are intelligent and bright and thoughtful, and I think that they have the capacity to identify these unjustifiable hierarchies, these unjustifiable institutions that perpetuate so much suffering in the world and recognize like, hey, this sucks. We should do things differently. It's funny because the kids definitely can't define what anarchism is or what communism is. On many occasions, they've asked like, hey, what does that word mean again? And I think that I I don't want to speak for Megan totally, but I think that the two of us kind of have a philosophy of like not trying to tell them what to think, but encourage them to look at the world soberly and engage with it in a way that allows them to critique and think through it and recognize the ways in which it does things well, the ways in which our society leaves people behind and to respond with kindness it's it sounds really trite but like it's a really powerful thing that i think often goes unspoken in you know leftist milieus where we're concerned with who has the most militancy who is the most passionate and most theoretical when i think in reality i'm drawn to leftist politics i'm drawn to anarchism in particular because of care and because of joy and because of the kinship relations that we cultivate with one another and i think that When you center those things in conversations as a family, when you center those kinds of things, joy, care, and kinship in dialogues about the world and about our place in the world, I think a politics of liberation and emancipation organically emerges from those kinds of conversations.
1: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm imagining in the future, if I'm ever in the situation of having to raise a kid, how the politics of that work. So it's like, I've got this real burning curiosity about it. So I really appreciate you sharing some of your thoughts on that. Yeah. I think you made a really good point.
0: Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And to be honest, two and a half years ago, I was in the, in the same boat. Like, hmm, I wonder how I would raise kids. And then just because of the circumstances of life and how love happens, that just kind of Fell into my lap, and it's been a huge joy it's been a huge struggle it's been something that I'm super not good at and, and imperfect at uh, but I'm trying really hard to be good at. I'm really fortunate that I have a partner who's incredibly gracious and understanding and patient and is such a great model of what it means to be a parent to kids in a way that is collaborative, that is nurturing, and that is non-coercive and rooted in consent. And so I'm really grateful that I have that opportunity to see someone do it way better than I ever could. It's definitely something that's endlessly fascinating to consider and to work through and to struggle with. And it's weird, Sean, because like inevitably you're going to fuck up. And so much of it is just being like, Well, uh, I fucked up, now how do I deal with that? How do I apologize? How do I try and be better? How do I learn from my fuck up so that I can not be terse. How do I learn from my fuck up so that I am more patient? How do I learn from my fuck up so that I recognize the signs of a conflict before it gets out of hand and can be addressed more quickly and more specifically, right? Inevitably, you're going to fuck up. But I think the more that we think about it, the more that we wrestle with it, and the more that we are in conversation about it with one another and with young people in particular, the better.
1: Totally. And of course, we can't have conversations about the rights of children without, again, emphasizing the particularities of the climate crisis that we face and the general trajectory to a less inhabitable world, which will be inevitably inherited by babies. The babies of today will suffer for the sins of their grandparents and the world situation that we're in. And I don't mean that to flatten class distinctions or to say that a gerontocratic analysis overwrites the class analysis or overwrites hierarchical analysis or any of the other incredible analysis. But it actually just seems to me to be a fact that right now the political decisions of elder blood-soaked statespeople are serving up the world as a dead planet to the babies. That's happening right now, is it not?
0: Oh, it it absolutely is. We are eviscerating the earth for the sake of short-term gains and profits for shareholders. And it is really, really scary to think about The reality of climate change and the warming of the planet, the loss of topsoil, the gradual erosion of of arable land, the mass die-off of different non-human animals is incredibly dire. And whatever lens you use to look at it, whether it's anthropogenic, whether it's capitalogenic, whether it is some other genic, the reality of climate change is that it's coming for the young and it's going to impact Young people worse than it's going to impact older folks. And that sucks and is an unavoidable and inevitable fact because of our collective lack of action on this topic. And I think that that is in so many ways a call to action for those of us who are able to step up the fight. It is incumbent upon those of us who can act to act in whatever way we can do so safely and effectively in order to combat this machine of death that is hurtling young people increasingly towards oblivion.
1: Right. And the other thing I wanted to mention about young people is often there's this discourse of the inspiringness of young people. And I'm inspired by young people too. And I'd like to think I was inspiring To older people when i was a little younger but the paradoxical underside the negative shadow that it casts is this idea that it's sort of up to young people to fix the problems of previous generations and i don't think that's the case And i don't think that's we didn't say that here today but i just wanted to underline that in a way it's kind of inspiring to see people of all ages fight back and I, Absolutely. yeah, no, totally. In some ways, it's more inspiring. I mean, I don't want to rank it more or less, but it's very inspiring to see people who are going against their own short term interests, whereas children, since they're aligned with their own interests, uh, it's kind of it's, it's really so inspiring. I don't know. I'm just kidding. uh,
0: (laughs) No. Yeah. I I totally hear what you're saying though. And I I appreciate it. And I think it's a good point because at the end of the day, for for better or worse, we are all in this together and it's going to take all of us in order to overthrow the various intersecting hierarchies that are plaguing our planet of which misopedia or childism or adult supremacy, whatever we want to call it is certainly one of those interfolding branches. Well, Sean, this has been a, a real fucking pleasure, my friend. It's always so great to talk with you and to um, shoot the shit with you and just generally engage on these big questions about about the world and um, society and philosophy and uh, politics and, and all that good stuff.
1: Well, I appreciate that, and likewise.
0: Oh, well, thank you thank, thank you. thank you so much. Um, Well, where can people find Seriously Wrong? Where can people get turned on to your work and, and Aaron's work.
1: Yeah. So we're our podcast. Seriously wrong as S R S L Y W R O N G. Um, seriously wrong. It's on all the podcast apps, Patreon, seriously wrong.com, Twitter, Facebook, etc. wherever you get your podcasts uh, and YouTube, it's all there. It's a, uh, it's a good old show. Huh? <laughs> it, it is. In fact, in my humble
0: opinion, I shouldn't say in fact, it is in my humble opinion, the best podcast, podcast on the left uh so you should definitely if you listen to the to coffee with comrades if you're checking this out in the coffee with comrades feed and you've made it this far you should definitely go listen to seriously wrong and throw them a couple bucks on patreon because their show fucking rules
1: oh well thank thank you uh a lot for saying that, that i really appreciate that and i also i love coffee with comrades and um i i i i hesitate to accept <laughs> the, the 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 terms of your praise well, uh, <laughs> listen, Sean, you don't have to, because again, I just said, it. it's just my personal opinion. I, right. I, I recanted personal, the fact absolutely. that it was a fact,
3: right? Yeah. So in my personal opinion, seriously wrong, is the best last podcast.
1: In your personal opinion, Pat, hey, what am I going to do? <laughs> what can you do? Well, I mean, what can you do? <laughs> One, uh, another thing I should mention that on this subject um, is that Aaron and I, my co-host who's not here for this conversation. We did a cartoon show which explores uh very explicitly ideas of youth liberation, uh, called Papa and Boy, which is coming out this summer on Means TV. So we expect that'll probably be in late summer. Um, it's a five-part cartoon series about a world inhabited entirely by papas and boys, um, and uh where all politics is framed in the context of the tension between parents and children. Um, so yeah, a lot of youth lib kind of ideas percolating through that and we've also got a multi-part podcast series on that so that's that'll be coming out uh very soon yeah but hey where can people get uh, coffee with comrade if people's coffee cup is feeling empty and they want to fill it up with some (laughs) warm coffee with comrades goodness where are they going to
0: so, uh, same places, uh, that you listed the exception, obviously being that we're not on seriously wrong, unless you're listening to one of the uh, podcast episodes, uh, that we have collaborated together. We're not on your website. We have our own website, which is, uh, coffee Uh, you can also find us on Patreon. You can find us, uh, pretty much anywhere you get podcasts from, you know, Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google play, et cetera. Um so yeah check us out there and um support us on Patreon if you got a couple bucks to spare. Um Sean, thank you so much my friend. It's it's like I said, it really is a pleasure talking with you and collaborating with you and this conversation has been really edifying and has given me a lot to think about. So thank you for that.
1: Oh yeah, I really appreciate that and likewise. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um and yeah, thanks for having this chat with me and hey and thanks for everyone who listened to this chat. You the real MVPs.
2: Are you serious? Are you serious? Are you serious? we
1: you think children are the future i mean <laughs> like, on the one hand i don't know how to respond
0: to that question because the answer is yeah yeah my guy <laughs> like of course <laughs>
1: you know You're kind of the present too
0: i mean yeah sure there are future there are present there were children in the past <laughs> i guess my impulse is kind of like i don't understand the question